Hello and welcome to Fishman Radio. I'm your host, Sonny Rusano, and I'm joined today by Fishman Director of the UN Women Committee, Alexia Ramos. Alexia, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. My name is Alexia Ramos. I am a sophomore at New York University, so currently I am in Manhattan. That is pretty cool. Well, I was going to ask another question, but I have to ask this. What is your favorite restaurant in New York City? Wow, that's a great one. I would say there, mm, that's a great one. There is a little restaurant in Little Italy. I can't pronounce the name correctly, so I'm not going to try, but it's a very authentically family-owned restaurant, and I absolutely love going there. That sounds uh, amazing, even though, like, I, uh, my parents are from Little Italy, so I know that a lot of the Italian restaurants are very hard to pronounce, and uh, Mm -hmm. I've taken a year of Italian. I still can't pronounce half of them, so, but (laughs) Let's uh, let's get into it. So the first topic we're going to discuss today um, is ending violence against women and girls. And then after we'll talk about um, the other topic, which is political leadership and participation by women and girls. So, uh, Alexia, can you start off by explaining what uh, intimate partner violence is or IPV and what the scale of that problem is right now? Yes, of course. So as defined by the UN, intimate partner violence refers to a pattern of behavior in any relationship that is used to gain or maintain power and control over an intimate partner. So it must be remembered that IPV takes all types of forms, not only physical violence, but it can be experienced as emotional abuse as well. It's a wide scale issue in every part of the world. It is the most common form of violence globally, and it disproportionately affects women. With that said, we do see more intimate partner violence occurring in Latin America, the Caribbean, Oceania, and developing countries where it exists in 40% of households, as opposed to the worldwide average, which is about 35% of women who have experienced intimate partner violence. So you're saying that it is more common in certain parts of the world. Um, With this in mind, should member states of UN women take a more global perspective towards the solution, or should they focus on those places where Uh, IPV is more common than not? So I believe focusing on both areas would be very useful for delegates. Every country in the world is impacted by violence against women and girls. However, as I said, it's important to look at which countries are disproportionately affected and specifically why they are. Certain countries should not be neglected just because they have lower rates of violence because the violence still occurs at a pretty high level. So delegates should look at resources that can help globally, but also focus on what's lacking from countries where violence is slightly more prominent. Yeah, definitely. And uh, kind of talking onto that is that in some of these countries and even some regions of the world, there are um, cultural attitudes that justify violence against women and girls. And because of that, in uh, your background guide, you know that only 10% of women who experience this kind of violence seek help. So how can uh, UN women work to expedite the changing of these attitudes around the world and especially in these places where IPV is so, uh, so common? This is probably one of the tougher questions that delegates will have to answer. In my opinion, I think the changing in attitudes requires a cultural shift that can only really come about through education. Many cultures are patriarchal, which limits the ability of women to seek resources and support for the violence they've endured. So perspectives must shift from an early age to understand the violence women endure and what others, specifically men, can do to help. The UN specifically recommends that countries implement more resources for women, including but not limited to centers for physical and psychological support following the violence. However, along with this, I believe there needs to be a more open-minded perspective so that women feel comfortable to access these resources. Yeah, like you said, uh, 
a lot of uh, delegates when they're preparing their research and working towards uh, making those resources available through the resolutions that they're going to pass during committee will probably look at multinational uh, committees and conventions uh, to kind of see what they were doing. Um, one of these conventions is the Istanbul Convention. So if you wouldn't mind, could you elaborate on what the Istanbul Convention is and if it's been successful in its goals? Of course. So in short, the Istanbul Convention focused on preventing and combating violence against women and girls and comprised of the Council of Europe's member states. It set up guidelines to enhance the protection and prevention of women impacted by violence, the prosecution of perpetrators, and set up monitoring mechanisms for this violence. It should also be noted that the convention recognized that no single agency or institution can deal with violence against women and domestic violence specifically. Thus, it did not set up the singular agency. Rather, it emphasized that each country must do their part to protect women. The convention was adopted in April 2011 and opened for signature in May 2011, so it may be a little outdated at this point. With the 10th anniversary of the convention being this year, it's a good time to evaluate its success so far. The Council of Europe stated that it has been successful in monitoring violence and has seen much cooperation between countries in sharing their best practices between one another. However, they also recognized the drastic increase in domestic violence hotline calls following COVID-19 lockdowns. There's also been political movements protesting the convention in countries such as Turkey, where conservative media outlets have tried to lobby Turkey to withdraw from the convention. They claim that the convention impeded on Turkish values. So while there has been some progress made with the convention, such as cooperation between nations, the UN still has a long way to go to protect women and girls from violence. So how can UN women learn from the successes, as you mentioned, and the pitfalls of this uh, of the Istanbul Convention to try to create more effective legislation, especially in light of the pandemic? Yeah, going off of that, um, UN women must recognize the new problems that have arisen with the Istanbul Convention that it did not address, such as the increase in domestic violence following COVID-19. This is a very recent issue and not much has been done to address this violence. Along with this, UN Women needs to keep in mind how certain cultural perspectives may limit the work they are able to do, such as in Turkey. They should focus on how to change these cultural ideas, as we talked about earlier, so that women can be protected from the violence rather than subjugated to it. Great, thank you. And one last question just to wrap up. Um, so the UN Women, uh, or the Secretary General has a UNITE goal uh, by 2030. And uh, I just want to know, what do you think UN Women can do during uh, their committee session to try to meet the Secretary General's goal of UNITE by 2030? Yeah, so the UNITE goal is a multi-year effort aimed at preventing violence against women and girls, and much has already been done to achieve this goal. However, one thing that the UN women are lacking in is how to combat this violence in the short term. In other ways, how can we provide resources to pre-existing victims, as well as how can we help these victims reach out for help? Clearly, prevention is just as important, but it is already being heavily focused on within the campaign, such as through the Unite Goals 16 Days of Activism Against Gender-Based Violence. Therefore, I think UN women can further achieve this goal, but also consider the combat of current consequences of the ongoing violence. Great, thank you very much. And that wraps up the first part of the, of the episode uh, for Ending Violence Against Women and Girls. All right, now we're going to start uh, part two, which is political leadership and participation by women and girls. And the first question I have for you, Alexia, is um, what is Security Council Resolution 1325 
in relation to UN women and how has it improved women's participation in government since its adoption? So resolution 1325 set a specific agenda with the goal of advancing women in all aspects of peace building. The resolution was unanimously adopted in October of 2000 and serves as a guide in many UN negotiations to ensure that women are included in decision-making processes. It was the first resolution written by the UN to recognize the importance of women leadership. The goals of this resolution were further enhanced by resolution 2122, which discussed the participation of women in all phases of conflict prevention, resolution, and recovery, expanding upon resolution 1325. It has been successful in the past 20 years of increasing the number of women in politics. However, of course, there's still work that needs to be done. Women remain predominantly in the periphery sphere of formal peace processes. There are many times where women are signatories but are left on the outside. Peace agreements are still adopted without provisions considering the needs and priorities of women and girls. A small 0.2% of bilateral aid to fragile and conflict-affected situations goes to women's organizations. So I think that shows how we still have improvement to make regarding women's participation in politics. Uh, Yeah, exactly. Uh, So kind of touching on what you said, how does women's participation in government affect global politics? So in terms of peace talks between countries in global politics, without women's participation, their needs are not met. These needs include, but are not limited to, land distribution schemes, judicial hearings, and trials for those accused of war crimes and atrocities. With peacekeeping missions specifically, women have been seen as increasingly integral to the process because they are often seen as less confrontational and easier to approach by other women and girls. Along with this, due to the lack of formal training, For men peacekeepers regarding women's needs, they tend to be unapproachable since they don't have the knowledge to provide and support these afflicted women in need. It is also said that women provide a more nurturing and understanding attitude to peace talks due to their motherly nature. Because of socialization, women have skills that most men do not possess because society has not forced it upon them as they have women. There'll never be conclusive evidence towards this idea of motherly nature. And I don't know if I necessarily agree with this assumption, but nevertheless, I thought it should be mentioned. Yeah, and it's a very interesting uh, conclusion because in a lot of, uh, a lot of communities around the world, uh, the um, woman in the household is, is seen as a uh, maternal figure for like communication and like they are the communicator in the family when, uh, when, uh, when issues arise and stuff like that. So it is interesting to see how that kind of plays out on a global scale and if it is in fact true or just a an overplayed stereotype um Mm -hmm. kind of on the same on the same track um how can un women help facilitate making more governments around the world accessible to women so i believe un women can begin by looking at successful systems of women in government india's panchayati government apologies if i said that wrong are regulated self-elected local government institutions, primarily in rural areas of India, about 50% of the elected representatives of the PRIs are women, which is important considering 70% of India's population is governed by one of these institutions. It provides the opportunity for women to be involved in politics beginning at the local level, and they could work their way upward if they wish to do so. These have been proven to be incredibly effective in driving economic, environmental, and social change, and that's primarily attributed to the women in government. Once again, I also believe a lot of this comes with education. In order to break down the patriarchal ideas of society, both men and women must be taught early on that women are just as capable in these spheres, specifically government spheres, since that's what we're discussing at the moment. 
We have to break down societal beliefs in order for women to have the opportunity to succeed in politics. Yes, and I completely agree that education is the primary, uh, the first thing that should be should be focused on um, in terms of like child development and understanding that um, women are just as capable as men, as you said, to do everything in terms of government and beyond that. Um, what does hinder education, though, in one sense, are violent conflicts. So um, in other ways, what what ways do uh, violent conflicts specifically affect girls and women? So these events disproportionately affect women and girls in numerous ways. As I spoke about earlier, most military personnel is not fully educated on the effects of violent conflicts on women and how to support them. Furthermore, sexual assault during armed conflict is one of the largest concerns pertaining to gender equality. It's estimated for each rape reported during armed conflict, 10 to 20 cases go undocumented. Something else I want to know is that women are not only sexually assaulted by those in the war, but can also be by those who are supposed to be there for help. There have been numerous reports of UN peacekeepers abusing their power and taking advantage of women in armed conflicts. I want to leave room for delegates to do their own research regarding this. But in brief, the most recent event of this occurring was in Central, it was in the Central African Republic, where peacekeepers would sexually abuse young children, specifically girls, in exchange for food or money. The UN and specifically UNICEF is in the process of combating these allegations and providing women with the support they need. However, how are women and girls supposed to deal with the trauma of armed conflicts when they're the ones being harmed by those who are supposed to help them? Lastly, peace talks to end the violent conflicts. Women's voices are often omitted, as we talked about earlier. So even after the conflict settles, they don't have the proper support that they need to cope from the physical and psychological harm, nor are they really provided with these resources. Yes, and uh, I agree that it, with everything you said, really, it was uh, very well put. Um, do you have anything else you want to leave the, uh, the delegates with uh, before, we, uh, before we end the episode? I think there's a lot of research that they can do. There's a lot of different ways that they can take it. And it's really up to their countries and what their countries see the need to look more into regarding these conflicts, since they're so multifaceted and there's so many different solutions that are feasible regarding this. So I want to leave it up to them to be flexible as to what they want to discuss more, what they want their solutions to focus on. Well, great advice. And thank you very much for, uh, for joining me on this episode. Uh, I am Sonny Rosano, joined by Alexia uh, Ramos, and uh, this has been Fishman Radio, UN Women. Thank you for listening.